the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, um, and, and, and are back in the province, are in great trouble and distress, uh, disgrace. <clears throat> the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you, have, you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. May God bless the reading of his word. May he give us ears to hear, mind to understand, and a humble heart to apply. His word. I want you to think about three categories of experience. Did you ever find yourself in a position of decision? You've, ha- you've come to an important crossroad, and you're just not sure which way to go. If you take a left and choose what's on this side, your life will be dramatically altered, probably changed in one way or another for the rest of your life. But if you go straight, you're setting yourself up for another specific direction in life, and you're just not sure which way to go. Maybe it's not choice. Maybe it's difficulty. Have you ever found yourself with some kind of tragedy or trial or some other negative circumstance that has put you, or I should say put things, out of your control? Maybe it's not decision or difficulty. Maybe it's disconnectedness. Have you ever found yourself feeling a disconnect between you and God? You know God is out there, but he doesn't seem to be listening or paying much attention to you. You feel distant, disconnected to God. Whether you're have been in category one or two or three or sometimes multiple combinations of those, when you're in those situations, you feel like you want God to show up in a big way for you. How do you do that? I mean, how do you seek God in times like that? What do you do? How do you get unstuck? Is there a way to hear from God when you really need his guidance? Is there a way to get divine comfort and maybe even relief 
when the difficulties hit? Is there a surefire way to get God's attention if you feel disconnected from him? Well, I'm very leery of asking those how-to formulaic questions because God is not some divine robot that if we just do or say the right things, he will move on our behalf. The Bible is clear that God is a relational God. And like all good relationships, it's dynamic. It's not static, not formulaic. Still, our reading this evening, as you, and as you'll see a bit later, many other readings in the Bible give us a formula of sorts to approach God when we face situations in those three categories of life. A guide not to getting our own way or guaranteeing our prayers to be answered in the way we want them to be answered, but a guide to further intimacy within the relationship we have with God. A formula for engaging our Heavenly Father who created us, who loves us, who wants us to consider Him our perfect Father. So let's look back at Nehemiah 1 and see if we can identify elements or pieces of the guide map for seeking God in times of decision or difficulty or disconnect. First, let's figure out the situation. Nehemiah is a Jew in service to the king of Persia. Now, if you've uh, been around any of the faith services, morning or evening, this is a familiar concept to you. We've been uh, looking at it in the morning um, over the, the past couple months in Daniel. We looked at it um, last week, last evening with Esther. And uh, so I won't go into too much detail, but the Jews have been exiled from their homeland into uh, scattered throughout the uh, Persian Empire. And Nehemiah is in service to the king of Persia, a very powerful man. And he's a cupbearer, which means he has to taste the wine and make sure no one has poisoned it before he gives it to uh, the king. Important person, but uh, dispensable one. And so the Jewish people have been exiled, exiled now for, for decades. And they're longing for home. And they still keep a strong Jewish identity. They feel very much out of place in the Persian Empire. They're away from their homes, away from the comfort of their own laws and customs. But more importantly, they're apart from the temple in Jerusalem, their place of worship, the epicenter of their religious identity. And the book of Nehemiah opens with some fellow Jews who are uh, just come in from the motherlands, just come in from Jerusalem, and are coming to visit Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, hey, how are things back home? And the news is bleak. Listen again to verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Nehemiah's people are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. If you're going to be any kind of city whatsoever, you need a good wall to keep the good people in and the bad people out. 
The walls have broken down. There's no protection, no safety. They're totally vulnerable. And its gates have been burned with fire. Even if you have a good wall, you need good gates. The gates are burned down. When I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. He is troubled by this. His people are in disgrace and in trouble. The center of worship, the city of God, is in ruins. The walls are broken down, the gates are burned. And so Nehemiah, when he hears the news, just can't take it. He sits down and starts crying. Clearly, Nehemiah has found himself smack dab in the middle of category two, difficulty. And because of the situation, category two has also pushed him into category one, decision. He can't just sit on the news. Actually, he could. He has a decision to make. What's he going to do? Is he just going to feel depressed and bummed out about it and do nothing? Or is he going to ask to be excused from his duties and go try to do something? Or is he going to try to leverage his favor with the king and try to use his, uh, pull some strings? What is he going to do? So his difficulty has brought him to the decision. So what does Nehemiah do? Listen to verse 4. For some days... Now part of me wishes that it would have been specific. And I looked up the Hebrew word, and sure enough, it says it's, it's for days. It doesn't, it's very nondescript. And that's probably all for the better, because we have a legalistic tendency. And if he would have said, you know, for three and a half days, then we would have uh, written about 27 Christian books saying, you know, do this for, for you know, three and a half days, and, and God will come to your rescue. Or, uh, so in, in, in some sense, I'm glad it's nondescript. But it says, for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. For some days, I don't know if it was two, three, seven, fourteen, but for some days, Nehemiah mourned and fasted and prayed. Those are three key ingredients. He mourned. We talked about this a little, um, a week ago, Sunday evening, when in the story of Esther, Mordecai, after find, finding out that Haman has uh, issued a, a death warrant for all Jews, literally issues the, a decree for the annihilation of the Jews, uh, Mordecai goes to the center of the city and tears his clothes and weeps. It's a public sign of self-abasement. Uh, it's a sign of humility. We don't practice that today, and, and, and frankly, I'm kind of grateful because I don't have a huge clo- cloth budget, but neither did they back then. And so if you tore your clothes, um, it says next that Esther went, went and sent a bunch of clothes to him. But it's, it's, a, it's a sign of, hey, the situation is out of my control. And, and, and so ripping your, tearing your clothes and, and uh, weeping publicly is a sign of humility before God. It's saying, I am out of control and I can't affect the situation. Well, the same thing happens in Nehemiah. It says, Nehemiah, for some days he mourned. Mourning is, is a sign 
that things are lost under our own power. That under our own physical uh, efforts and energies, we're in trouble. And so he mourns. It's a discipline throughout the Bible. He mourns, and then he fasts. Fasting is, in a way, very similar to mourning, because it's a way of showing that you have no control, and, but God does. Fasting turns a little bit more positive, but in fasting, you take your physical urges that we all have to eat. In fact, my metabolism is such that, you know, 15 minutes go by after, after noontime, and, and my body's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Feed me. And so fasting is a way of saying, hey, I'm sticking it to my, my physical urges, my physical desires. I can't do things um, on my own here. I'm sticking it to my urges and my desires, and I'm availing myself to, to, to my God. The physical world isn't going to help me, so I'm turning to the spiritual world. And that's the discipline of fasting. Fasting says no to our physical urges and says yes to God. And so there's this progression of, uh, of humbling yourself, mourning, creating a disposition where you realize that things are out of control unless God steps in. And then fasting, it's a, it's a more active way of saying, hey, I'm not going to rely on physical things. I am seeking God. And then prayer. He mourns, he prays, he fasts. And now it says, when he says it, he prayed for some days, I really don't think it was five minutes in the morning. I really don't think it was a three-minute prayer before his meal. Well, it says he was fasting, so um, it definitely wasn't three minutes before his meal. But I don't think it was even 15 minutes at night before he went to bed. I think at the very least, he was probably following the typical Jewish uh, daily offices of morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. Something that we have largely gotten away from in the New Testament church. It, well, I shouldn't say New Testament church, because they didn't get away from it. The Western U.S. church. We've largely gotten away from the three times of daily prayer. Prayer in the morning, prayer in the afternoon, prayer in the evening. And sometime in my life, I've always wanted to do this, is orient my work life and my, my family life so that I can do those offices. So that I could pray in the morning, and eat, but I haven't got there. And... Uh, but so all, all I'm saying is that at the very least, Nehemiah is probably taking those three periods of, of, uh, of prayer time. But it probably goes beyond that because this is serious to him. He's mourning. He's fasting. So in his prayers, it's not just a, Lord, give me what, uh, you know, give Jerusalem what Jerusalem stands in need of. He is crying out he, for Jerusalem. He is crying out for the city of God. He is seeking God's face actively. I want to take a quick look at the content of his, that prayer. And I want to take a, like a 30,000 feet sky-high approach. And we're just going to look at the, the peaks and the valleys of this prayer. And if you were to give a quick summary of that prayer, you could say, Nehemiah prayed a prayer that has four uh, pieces to it. Starting with verse 5, there's this introductory piece that's very important. It says, O Lord, God of heaven... The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open 
to hear the prayer your servant is praying. That first piece is that Nehemiah humbly asserts his position with God. He says, God, you are great and mighty. You are awesome. You are in heaven. But then he uses God's goodness as a sort of leverage for God to continue listening to him. He says, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love and obey his commands? (laughs) In other words, me, Nehemiah. So he starts off by really humbly asserting his position, his standing with God. God, you are in heaven. You are great and awesome, and you love your people. You listen to those who keep your commands and who revere your name. He humbly asserts his position with God and uses God's goodness as leverage for the rest of his prayers. There's a second component, and this is pretty fascinating. The second component combines personal and group um, repentance. Look at verses, uh, the second part of verse 6 and 7 with me. It says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He, just, he not only confesses his own sin, but he confesses the sin of his family, of his nation. So he goes from this period, this prayer, by the way, comes after his period of mourning, fasting, and prayer. So he, coming out of this humbling um, series of days of spiritual discipline, he goes into this prayer and humbly asserts his position with God, relying on recalling God's goodness as a sort of leverage to say, God, you're good, you keep your covenant with your people, listen to me. And then the first thing he does is ask for forgiveness for himself and his people. Back to humility. The next thing he does, now that he's recognized himself at the bottom, asks for for God's forgiveness, he then begins to claim and assert God's promises. Look at verse 9. It says, well, uh, starting with verse 8, remember the instructions you gave, like, as if God needs to be reminded, you know? But it's, it's a part of his prayer. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling um, for my name. He is standing on the platform of the promises of God. He's saying, God, I know your word. You've promised this. I am praying this for this time. There's this very powerful formula for seeking God with all your heart, humbling yourself, recognizing that you're not coming as a beggar before God, but you're, become, you're, you're coming as a sinful person before God, uh, one of God's people, and then confessing your sins, and then standing on the word of God, standing on the promises. And then the last piece, the fourth piece, is asking God to act. Verse 11, O Lord, 
Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, this man isn't the, the taxi cab driver or the dishwasher. This man is the king. But even in using that language, this man, instead of the king, he's recognizing that I'm not placing my hope in what the king, how, the, how the king may help me. I'm placing my hope in you. And I'm thinking that you might want to use the king. So, to sum up this prayer, he humbly asserts his position with God. He, asks, he repents personally and corporately. He asserts God's promises. And then he asks God to act. There's an incredible similarity um, that I've discovered between Nehemiah's prayer and approach to God to many other godly people's prayers and approaches to God. In fact, it's kind of excited me. I've seen this consistency throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that if I was about 15 years younger, I maybe would have done a a dissertation on this. It's, it's, It's really pretty cool. And uh, I looked in the commentaries in Nehemiah, and they don't make this connection, but I'm going to make this connection for you. Um, and uh, hopefully this is no giveaway to uh, the next sermon in Daniel. But Daniel 9, just turn with me to Daniel 9 real quick. And if you're not all excited about the Old Testament, um, hang in there. This has a lot of bearing on your life, and I, I'll make it a- applicable. But um, let's just, let's just uh, check out this similarity here. In Daniel chapter 9, there's a, a, a very, very similar parallel. Now, Daniel wasn't copying Nehemiah at all. This is, this is a distinct, different, separate text. Starting with verse 3, it says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting And then in sackcloth and ashes, another form of mourning. Sackcloth is that itchy stuff that you wouldn't want on you. Put the itchy stuff on you, and you're sticking it to your body. You're saying, take that, um, physical world. And the ashes are a public display that that you're mourning. That, that, you know, that's what we're the... Really, this is uh, the same tradition where... um, Why the Catholics put ashes on their head on uh, um, on Ash Wednesday. Is because it's a sign of mourning that... That we are but dust, and from ashes we come, and to ashes we'll go. And uh, so Daniel has those same three things. Prayer, fasting, mourning. And then listen to this prayer. I'm just going to clue you in the first couple phrases of the prayer. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been w- wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your covenant, uh, your, your commands and laws. We have not listened. Do you see that right there? It's actually almost identical, that first phrase. Let me just read it real quick. It says, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps the, his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. And then in Nehemiah, it's, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. There's this... First, hey, let's set the stage. God, you are great and you are awesome, but you listen and love me because I am part of your people. There's that humble assertion of, of, uh, um, assertion of, of uh, position. And then both Daniel 
and Nehemiah uses God's goodness to leverage the rest of his prayer. And then both Nehemiah and Daniel go right on to repentance. And then if we were to track with the rest of the Daniel prayer, you would see the same thing. You would see, um, after the personal and group repentance, you'd see assertion on God's promises. God, you have promised this. Your word says this. I am standing on this. And therefore, I am asking you to act. But it's not just Nehemiah and Daniel. And if you bear with me for a moment, I just want to walk you through a few more passages. And then we'll take it home in the next four minutes. Second Chronicles seven fourteen, God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I'll hear their land, heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. See the humbling, the praying, the seeking God's face. Psalm fifty-one seventeen on the heels of the Bathsheba affair. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David is saying, hey, here's a prayer that God won't reject. God is, will listen to a prayer that comes from a, a humbled heart, a broken spirit. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. This is a prophecy about what God says through the prophet, prophet Isaiah. For this is what the high and lofty one says. God is saying this. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a whole, high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is awesome. This is God talking, saying, hey, I live in a high and lofty place, but I also live within people who are humble and contrite, and I raise them up. In the New Testament, two more passages. Luke 18. Jesus tells this, this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And I want to pause there and say, you see, without the humble sincerity, fasting and tithing, and all the other acts of worship or spiritual disciplines are meaningless without the humble sincerity. And the, but Jesus continues, he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, the humility, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The sinner's prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified. That's a strong religious word for made right before God, justified before God. Last passage, and I thank Lambert for this one because he shared it in the middle of the river um, yesterday canoeing. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I had called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. See, this, the early church... They were worshiping God. And to, only, to, to have real worship, it doesn't matter the style or the songs or the structure. To have real worship is to have a humble, sincere heart, recognizing who God is. And so they're in a state of, of humble recognition, and they're worshiping, and they're fasting. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, Set apart Saul and Barnabas. And they continue to pray and fast, and then they send them off.
That's just a little tidbit of what's in the Bible. For all three of those categories we talked about in the beginning, decision-making, difficulties, spiritual disconnect, there is clear guidance on seeking God. Here's the difficult part. For some reason, in my Christian upbringing, I was only taught to dabble in seeking God. I was only taught to dabble in seeking God. I was taught to read God's word. I was taught to pray here and there. But as far as seeking the God the way these biblical characters sought God, I just heard rumors of, heard whispers about it. It was never taught or modeled to me as a child to pursue God the way these godly people in biblical verses instruct us to. It wasn't until in college that I began to investigate fasting and other spiritual disciplines, praying more than 15 minutes. I knew nothing about fasting. And in all honesty, I think my childhood upbringing reflects, maybe is, is, is indicative of the church today. In a way, we are mo- a lot more like fair-weather fans when it comes to seeking God than we are like these biblical characters and the biblical instruction. I kind of see it as liken it to a, a die-hard fan versus a fair-weather fan. Let's say on, here, on the right we have a, a die-hard Cubs fan, and on the left we have a die-hard Sox fan. It doesn't matter which color the socks are, red or white. Um, and let's say you're coming forward, and you're getting grilled by these die-hard fans. And the first question they ask are, how many live games did you see at, at uh, the cell or at Wrigley? And you say, uh, none, I didn't catch any live games. Well, that's all right, that's all right, you know. How many did you watch on TV or listen on the radio? Well, me and my wife did eat at Anyways, and it was up on the screen on the right, and I did catch a few plays, but other than that, I didn't watch or listen to a full game. Okay, okay. And the, the diehard fan's starting to get angry now, and the blood pressure's starting to rise, and the color's coming to his cheeks. Name at least five of the starting players. And you're sitting there, well, there's Canerco, and Canerco, and Polly. Um, did I mention Canerco? Uh, maybe Sammy Sosa. Uh, and that's it. He goes off on you. You are not a fanatic. You are not a fan. You're a fair weather fan. You just want to be associated with the team, but you're not a fanatic. To some small extent, I think this is what we do as Christians when it comes to seeking God. And I learned from many faith seers that the same experience I had growing up was your experience. In fact, when we looked at this passage at our 65-plus senior Bible study on Tuesdays, I won't mention any names, but when we looked at the spiritual disciplines Nehemiah uh, employed, one of our seniors very passionately stood up and asked, why was this kept from us? Why haven't we learned of this before? They expressed a legitimate frustration and a feeling of being shortchanged, having not been steeped in the spiritual disciplines of the Old Testament. My only response was, the same for me, it's never too late. Hearing this from my senior Bible study, the 65 plus, I decided to test my senior catechism class, 18 plus. 
And I posed the question to them and I asked, how many of you have fasted in the last 30 days? No one. That's okay, you know, it's hard to fast when you're a, a high school senior, when you're consuming probably four times the caloric in, in, you know, count of, of most uh, human beings. Um, how about ever? Who has fasted ever? It was either eight or nine of us, and one hand went up. That was me when I was a senior in high school. Why is it? We are good at going to church. We're good at certain type of praying. But when it comes to fasting, when it comes to diving in and wholeheartedly, passionately seeking God, we're amateurs, we're rookies. Too often, we make decisions, whether in category one, two, or three, like this. Well, you know, I'm going to consider all the options. And then I'm going to consult a bunch of wise people. And then I'm going to come up with a decision. And once I come up with a decision, I'm going to pray and ask God to bless that decision. That is not a biblical formula. You can't find Nehemiah doing that. You first find Nehemiah mourning and praying and fasting. And once he does that, a decision comes to mind. And then he yields it up to God. The only way I really know how to apply this is how I've been trying to apply this in my life. And the application I'm going to give is a baby step. It's just a little teeny step forward. And the application is this. Pray to God for the passion and the fervency for the spiritual disciplines that are found in his word. Ask God to give you a heart for prayer like Nehemiah or Daniel or Isaiah. Ask the Lord to begin to open you up to fasting or meditation on scripture or spiritual journaling or whatever else helps you to seek God's face wholeheartedly. I feel like I've just crossed the starting line. And I wish I could scroll back to age three and say, Mom and Dad, please model this for me so I can hit my stride when I'm young. So by the time I'm 38, I'm walking like Nehemiah. Will you commit with me to the spiritual disciplines and pursuing God wholeheartedly, sticking it to our physical world and availing ourselves to the spiritual world.